Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Rob Long, one of the founders and editors at Ricochet.com. The podcast you're about to hear is a production of Ricochet.com, and if you haven't gone to visit us on the web, we invite you to do so. We are the fastest-growing, smartest, most civil conversation anywhere on the internet, and we invite you to become a member. Now, as a member, you get all the podcasts, including our famous flagship podcast between me, Peter Robinson, and James Lilacs comes out weekly. You also get to comment and contribute to the conversations on the member feed and the main feed. And now, for the cost of a yearly membership, you also get a year-long subscription to National Review Digital. That's the digital version of the magazine. So now you can read me and James Lilacs and Mark Stein and all of our Ricochet friends who are crossover between Ricochet and National Review in a handy PDF format. So if you subscribe to Ricochet, and become a member, you get Ricochet and the podcasts and the conversations and now a year's subscription to National Review Digital. Please go to ricochet.com and join today. John Pador, it's Rob Long Podcast. This is number seven. We've done seven of these. Is anybody, did anybody know, count up that there's seven? Um, and they, people keep calling it the Glop Podcast, but I refuse to because it just sounds, uh, frankly, too descriptive. Uh, this is Rob Long. I'm coming to you from kind of foggy San Francisco this time, not sunny Southern California. On the line with me, as always, is Jonah Goldberg in Washington. Jonah, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, pretty real. And also joining us on the phone, I think at this point, not on Skype. So uh, that will uh, uh, that will explain his uh, his audio quality. John Podoritz from New York City. John, how are you? I'm I'm well. I was just in San Francisco yesterday, and it was very nice. So I think you brought the fog. <laughs> yeah, I do. That's actually an old hip hop song. You br- you br- no an old punk song. You bring the fog. Um, so, fellas, we, we try to be funny, right? And we try to be as funny as we can. And that's the whole point of this particular podcast is to joke around the way we do when we're together. It's kind of hard to do um, today. Uh, but can I just stipulate and just say um, the ground rules for people listening to this and for us, uh, you know, I, I feel like we have to talk about the events in Connecticut. I even hate – I hate that. For, where did that – the events – we have to talk about this horrible crime in Connecticut. Where an insane person killed people uh, and children and was is awful, um, but let's uh, we'll put a clock on it, and um, as we say in show business, um, and then we'll stop talking about it. Not not because it's not important or not tragic or not awful or not heartbreaking, but because you can't talk about it uh, forever. Um, and I'm sure we'll be, everyone will be talking about it more in the next coming weeks. So is that is that is that a fair thing to do, or is that totally. weird? Yeah. No, I think okay. it's fine. Um. Uh, John, you tweeted something yesterday that I thought was really, for me, just because of the, the kind of sort of nonprofit work I do sometimes, um, really very short but powerful, which is that we the, – the conversation we have to have in this country is how do we deal with the insane? Right. Well, I mean there are two. There are the the, uh, the, the political effort you know, almost instantly when something like this happens is to sort of revert to the – 30, 40, 50 year, you know, um, uh, battle lines on, on guns and gun control. And, uh, um, and that's obviously where, uh, 
most of the mainstream uh, discussion went, you know, in the immediate aftermath uh, of this of this shooting. Um, I don't really think uh, I think that you're if you do that, you're you're looking essentially at the wrong end of the telescope. The question is, what is what is happening in the United States that is making uh, it possible for uh, the sociopathic, the psychopathic, and the schizophrenic to um, inc- act out increasingly when uh, such things, you know, don't really seem to happen very much in other countries, and and despite our extremely violent history, haven't really happened before, you know, the really the the modern era, you know, the post '60s era in the United States, and I don't think that we can look at this without looking at food. Uh, toward the mentally ill, uh, along with the general move toward um, uh, economic privatization in the 1970s and 1980s in the United States, which was a very, very positive thing economically, there was an odd decision to privatize what might be called uh, mental illness or, or or the public consequences of mental illness well, I, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't an odd decision right I mean that was actually considered best practice at the time um, yeah, no it was I mean, considered it was considered humane it was considered yeah you think about the popular but I think we need to explain what what that is because right. you know what happened was there was a there was a large uh, institutional system where um where where the mentally ill you know were essentially housed, um, there were many many abuses and many yeah. terrible. That's what all uh, acts that's what, things like that. It's how Geraldo made so, his career. Sorry, it's was how Geraldo made his career. That's, that's right. Geraldo made his career dealing with a dealing with a, uh, an institution in Staten Island called Willowbrook, uh, where the mentally ill were being warehoused and being abused, and so. Over the course of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there was a progressive deinstitutionalization in the United States, um, along with the creation of you know psychotropic drugs that were uh, designed to help uh, schizophrenics modulate and moderate their um, behavior. And in every place in which uh, they moved from institutions into halfway houses and the like, including the neighborhood that I grew up in, uh, instantly upon that happening, there would be a gigantic leap. Uh, in in uh, in violent activity uh, by people who were, you know, who simply were disordered, um, weren't taking their medication, weren't controlling themselves, and were, you know, let loose on society. But you know, they didn't have guns in my neighborhood. They had pen knives. A guy, a couple of people were stabbed outside a the supermarket on my corner by somebody in the midst of a of a you know of a psychotic. Yeah, no, right. there was, there was Larry Hogue up at 96th Street. Remember Larry Hogue? Yeah, Larry uh, Hogue. Uh, there was a famous story. There was a, the madman of West 96th Street, Larry Hogue, a, a homeless, uh, a schizophrenic homeless man uh, whose cause was taken up by the New York Civil Liberties Union, and he they could right. not keep him institutionalized, and he would terrorize the neighborhood. Now, so the question is, we don't know the story of the shooter. We don't know the circumstances of the shooter's life. What we do know is that there is a, um, you know, the country decided uh, that it wanted to spend its social service dollars in areas other than taking care of the mentally ill, and there are consequences to decisions like that. 
Well, but I, and I, I that's wish... my view is we can talk about guns, and you can you could ban every gun that has ever existed, and you would still not be dealing right. with the moral question of why it is that a person like this, the Jared uh, Lochner, uh, the person in right. uh, that shot up the theater in Colorado, why they are walking around loose. That's well, the I mean, question. Yeah, that, that is the question. But I, I wouldn't frame it entirely in budgetary concerns because it really was best practice, considered at the time, best practice of mental health that, that all these people were housed in these, you know, it, 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 look, it's, it's, it's one flew of the cuckoo's nest. The zeitgeist of the time was that this was bedlam. You're putting them in bedlam. It's wrong. And it's a violent, and they're not really uh, a danger to anybody. They're just inconvenient. Um, and that that was the point, and so what we did was we we took all we emptied out all those places because they were hellish, and um and, and and a lot of times people made I think a very 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 sound argument that actually they're safer on the street, frankly, than they are in these um, state mental hospitals where they're being assaulted and raped and drugged into submission. Yep. And this is civil liberties. I think it's more about civil liberties and and the. The, the the zeitgeist the, the the intellectual movement of the time rather than budgets. I'm sorry, John. I cut you off. Go ahead. Yeah, no. I mean, the, I mean, there's a fantastic book on this called "Madness in the Streets" by uh, Rail Gene Isaac and somebody else. And and John's right. I mean, we we grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and in the 19 late 60s and through the 1970s, I mean, every spring the mental hospitals would release these people who could now be safe on the streets again. And you'd have these Thorazine addicts coming down, you know, in migratory herds from um, further up in Manhattan. And they would just park themselves in doorways and on street corners. And um, there was a budgetary aspect of it too. I mean, it's, it's, it's often when you get these bi- the bipartisan consensus about something where one group, you know, that you really have the problems and, right. uh, you know, Republic, there were a lot of Republicans in, particularly in places like New York and California who liked it for budget cutting reasons. And there were a lot of Democrats who were sort of, and libertarian types who were bought in by the writings of Thomas Zaz, who's, uh, you know, a big libertarian hero and a hero of Tom Cruise. Um, and he believes that there's no such thing as insanity essentially. Right. And, um, you know, as someone who's, which was also about, which was also the point of one flew over the cuckoo's nest, that society right. was insane. Exactly. That's, exactly. Not that, that it was sane. R.D. Lang, various other hipster, uh, shrinks of the 60s and 70s that you know that that insanity was a proper response to right. the to the insanity of society and that we were looking at the right. again through the wrong end of the telescope the problem is and this is where it gets you know obviously these are very complicated social service questions and and all of that the, the the problem is that what what we now see is obviously something very deep very desperate very dark is going wrong, and the instant effort is to look at the equipment that is being used to cause the massacres and not at the commonality uh, of the experiences of the people who are committing the massacres. We've had, you know, 11 major mass killings in the last four or five years. They have all been committed by, by uh, apparently intelligent, resourceful uh, Sociopathic or schizophrenic people who are ordered enough to make a, a right. you know a very systematic plan and disordered enough to think that there is something glorious in you know in 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 right. slaughter and um, are we getting know, are we getting are we getting crazier as a country as a culture? Yes, I think I think why I, mean, I think it, it well I think it goes two directions. First of all, 
you know, this is all happening against the backdrop of a historic and unprecedented decline in crime, right? The last uh, 20 years have seen really the, in the first time in history a gigantic systematic reversal of, of, a, of, a, of a high crime society into a moderate crime society. This has never happened before in the annals of human history. We went from you know, a lot of murders to relatively few murders. We went from a lot of burglary and a lot, you know, to relatively few such things. A lot of that is because of better policing. A lot of it is because of warehousing criminals with longer prison sentences. So on the one hand, the society is getting less crazy and more law-abiding, and that continues. And on the other hand, these explosions of, um, of murderous, terrifying murderous insanity are clearly on the rise. And, and the question is, what are the social conditions that, are, that can be addressed? You know, I mean, you can't just address, well, you know, our society is sick. So, there's, you know, make society less right. sick. Right. It's not a goal. It's not a social science goal. Well, I mean, the let's, question we... is, are we, are we imagining that there's you know, a magic pill yeah. that you can give to people that will stop them from doing terrible things? And, well, there, there know... is kind of a pill. I mean, part of, part of the problem, I mean, just from working with the homeless youth in, in Hollywood, I know this, that there is a pill. There are these medications. They are kind of wonder drugs. The problem is you take them, you have to keep taking them. And when you take them and you achieve a certain yeah. balance in your life, then you think, oh, I'm fine. I don't need them anymore. And by the time you need them, you're, you've already gone down, back down the hole and it's hard right. to get them back. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there is a problem. That's but, I mean, the issue in but, mental health and all this called yeah. – you know, compliance and compli- you know, uh, compelling you people. Compulsion, really. You can't compel somebody to take medication unless you can right. take. Well, medication. you can. You can if they are. You can if they are forcibly institutionalized. And right. our society has a bias against that. Uh, it's very hard to deal with. And we know. You know. I mean, I think everybody knows somebody in their life uh, who has a schizophrenic relative, a schizophrenic child, something like that, whose lives, you know, who live in a kind of um, impossible balance Mm -hmm. because they have somebody who is off, who is basically off the rails. Right. Um, They can get no help. You know, uh, the rules of the rules of the the more libertarian rules since the 1960s say that, you know, people are to be presumed you know, compass mentis or in, capable of taking care. And then you have these people who are like imprisoned by the madness of their 30, 40, 50 year old children. Jonah, Jonah, do you, I mean, do you think they were getting crazier? Um, maybe I, 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 I'm spending a lot of time these days reading up on, um, civil society stuff and the sort of erosion of family structure and all that. And the thing that I sometimes wonder is, I think it's entirely possible that, you know, the incidence of schizophrenia is up. Who knows? I don't know, but it doesn't sound implausible to me. But what I do think is definitely on the rise is you have more and more people, you have more and more communities where people aren't performing the normal community functions of looking out for each other. And so you can have mm-hmm. particularly these smart, high functioning loner types, um, just sort of pass through without the society sort of saying, hey, what's going on with this guy? Right. Um, and it used to be, you know, if your neighbors had, your, had their eyes on you, um, you know, they might catch you doing something to a cat long yeah. before you did anything to anybody else. And right. that, right. I think, is one of the problems we have in a society is where the society 
is less equipped to police itself. And the problem that you get, and I don't want to get off the topic, but the problem that you get is that it becomes self-fulfilling, is that as you get a government that is designed to compensate for the erosion of civil society, it erodes civil society more to compensate right. for the erosion of civil society. And I think that's a real right. well, problem. You know, it's, also, well, it's important to note that these killers, you know, uh, almost all of them come from middle class, upper middle class families. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Texas Tech and Colorado shootings were done by graduate students. Um, you know, the, the, the killer in, in, in Newtown, Connecticut is the, is the son of a lawyer and a kindergarten teacher, um, you know, who, who grew up in a, you know, in a, in what is by all reports, a beautiful, you know, little prosperous town. Um, you know, the, the Columbine killers were middle-class kids. It's funny though. They they don't come from necessarily come from unstable families. The key moment in, in the lives of a lot of these uh, killers is that they they turn they're in their early twenties and there is this thing you know schizophrenia yeah that's when it manifests kicks. itself in the late teens there is a there is a you know it's some kind of thing that happens um, and you know when you read about you know, Jeffrey Dahmer came from uh, came you know middle class family this is not a classic pathological you know, criminal pathological response that we can say is the result of social breakdown, family breakdown, but, family but, chaos. But just to go back, just to go back a bit, a bit to what John was saying, because I think it's, it's, I mean, this is, again, we don't know anything about this guy specifically. But the, it, I, mean, I was always struck after the Columbine killings there, that I think it was either Dylan Klebold or Eric Harris, what his parents gave him that year, I think that month, for his birthday. It was a mini refrigerator. For his room, right. So he, he already had a little microwave in there. Himself. He already had a little microwave in there. He already had his TV and everything. It, it, it was a message from his parents to just stay in there, right? And don't don't get don't be monitored. And I think there is something what Joan was saying was that we did we used to have a sort of a slightly more busybody monitoring culture where we didn't rely on the government to do it. I suppose one way to look at it. And maybe that's that's enough. But I, I cut you off, Joan. No, no, I think yeah, it's I, very that, big. It's a, yeah. Uh, and I don't think, and I think John is right about to point out that these guys came from middle class backgrounds. But as I think we all know, um, families, nuclear families, are capable of enormous blind spots yeah. and enormous enabling. And um, so you can have families that are just trying to do the best they can to deal with the, the awful reality of the kinds of people that their kid that their kid may be turning into mm-hmm. and the rest of the if the rest of the society is like well if the you know the family's on top of it who are we to you know get in the way and so you know i mean i do think that you can have um it may not be that these guys came from broken homes but the way communities sort of interact with families with weird kids um has changed a lot i think in the no, last that, look that's absolutely true and part of this is this question, when you read, you know, these these really early interviews with the people who went to, you know, school with, with the, the the killer in Connecticut, they say, you know, he was a loner, he kept to himself, he didn't have social skills, blah blah blah. Now, every person who was like, you know, you can't instantly say, oh my God, you better do something. That person is a loner without many social skills, and he's sitting in the cafeteria by himself. Half of the University of Chicago would have to be incarcerated. Right? Exactly, <laughs> it's, it's exactly right. Um, so that obviously you can't then you know you can't extrapolate right. from that 
but you can say that we're, you know, you can say that there's a flip side to accepting weirdness as, you know, and saying, well, we're, everybody's different in their own way. You can't judge. Everything is wonderful. Is that when you, when you define, um, you know, sort of like unconventional behavior very, very broadly, you know, uh, and, and without judgment, you create the conditions under which somebody who is crying for help and doing, you know, it's basically in a position where they are, red lights are flashing all over the place. People just say, well, I can't judge well, them. Yeah. How do I know? Who, you know, everyone's different, and, you know, that's what's wonderful about our society, and, uh, right. you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, so, 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 Jonah, what do you think the outcome is? Or what do you think the next step is? Or what, well, what, where, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, look, I think all of us, dread the coming arguments about this because they're simultaneously so relevant and also so friggin' exhausting because we've heard them before. Um, and I can just tell from like friends and family members who, you know, are just like, look, I don't want to hear about how this wouldn't have happened if the teachers had been armed, you know? Um, and I'm pretty pro second amendment. I'm pretty pro gun. Uh, but I think this is going to be a very, troublesome argument about gun control and all the rest but there's one point i would like to make though you know obama said yesterday and i and f- from what i can tell it was a heart rending sincere mm-hmm. wonderful thing i got no complaints about it on the merits um but it's it, he used this line that a lot of people have used He was like we need to do something about this um that puts aside the politics and this formulation always drives me crazy because politics is the process by which people with sincerely held positions and interests deliberate and adjudicate and right. and and interact to solve to come to to conclusions about things that's what you know politics in yeah. this in the american context politics is just <laughs> simply a euphemism for democracy and, it really is, and whenever whenever people say that, about anything, like, hey, can we just put politics aside? What they really no, mean but that's is, not even the up? worst. Can you just that's shut up and do the, what I want? The worst is, you know, we need to have a conversation. <laughs> yeah, we need to have a like, like we haven't been having a thirty-year conversation about guns and gun control. It's one of the enduring, one of the four or five enduring discussions that we have in the United States and have had since the, you know, uh, in which the battle lines are very, very clearly drawn between the parties and between, you know, uh, uh, ideas and opinions about, and, uh, about, you know, what constitutes a second amendment, right. And, you know, uh, all of the, uh, all of the, uh, judicial findings in the seventies and eighties went one direction in the last 10 years, things have been going it more in the direction of second amendment rights, including a, major decision this week in Illinois to, you know, to, um, to affirm the right to uh, carry a concealed weapon, um, as a, you know, as a, as a constitutional right. Um, these are, um, you know, when people say I, we need to have a conversation, they're actually saying we need to have a conversation in which one side shuts up and the other side gets to say whatever it wants and the other, and, and, and one side closes its mouth and doesn't say, look, 125 million people in this country live in households with guns. And there are three of these incidents a year. So it's nightmarish beyond description. Statistically and factually, you cannot 
locate a, you could only locate the existence of guns in private hands as a cause of these incidents. But you cannot say that the ownership of a gun is, you know, statistically it means you're only a little bit more likely to commit right. such a thing than you would if you didn't live in a household with a gun. <laughs> you know, because we, we, 36 or 37 percent of Americans live in a household with a gun. But so, we still have to have a national conversation. We have, yeah, we, I mean, but, yeah, so a national conversation is the opposite of a conversation. Right. Well, the yeah. most glaring, the most glaring, and I write a column about this every three years or so. Yeah, the most glaring example of this is is on race, right? Because they say constantly, you know, I mean, the Attorney General, Eric Holder, called America a nation of cowards for its refusal to talk honestly about race. And the simple fact is that the second. Anyone who disagrees with the people who say we need a national conversation about race and talks about black out of wedlock birth or the stupidity of racial quotas or whatever, they're immediately denounced for how dare you say that. You know, and it's basically a game of whack-a-mole where you say, come on, be courageous and have a frank conversation. And the second you're frank about anything, they hit you over the head with a rhetorical mallet. You know what? what's odd is that on um, the night the – night- yeah, it's a Thursday night before we found out about the, about the shooting, uh, before the shooting took place. I, I had this kind of moment of, of clarity in which I thought, okay, look, Barack Obama's president for a second term. Um, I, I don't want to sit around and cry about this for four years. And maybe something really extraordinary can come out of this. I don't see how anything extraordinary can come out of it in policy terms because I think his policies are terrible. And, you know, and, and, and all sorts of other things are going to happen. But I did, it did, I did have this thought, which is, here is Barack Obama. He is now, without question, the most important black American who has ever lived. The most important. More important than Frederick Douglass, more important than Martin Luther King Jr. He is now, you know, he's been elected twice by, by majorities. Um, it is an indication of massive American change. Um, it, it suggests the blending of... Um, you know, of of of, of African Americans into American society as we have as we have dreamed would happen. And what is the extraordinary thing that could come out of this? Well, the main problematic social issue for you know African Americans is um, fatherlessness. It is the key fact. It is the key fact of all poverty, uh, white and black and Hispanic. But it is a particular disease uh, in the black community. You know, I think it's seventy percent of kids grow up in homes without without fathers, or legitimacy rate is approaching seventy percent, and all of that. And here you have finally, finally, finally. You know, it's not Bill Cosby, an entertainer. It's not you know, it's not a great athlete. You have the the leader of the country who is the best role model. African Americans have ever had, right. African American males have ever had. He is he is a particular hero to them. He is a particular kind of icon. He should be. He deserve. This is what he deserves to be. And if he can explicitly, if he would explicitly, go on a campaign as president to say that his legacy would be to. Stand his for his, his social legacy would be to stand mm-hmm. for people and to convince you know all all people, but maybe particularly his own people, that uh, 
people need to get married. They need to stay if they have children. They need to be married and they need to stay <laughs> are married. Are you suggesting? They, are you suggesting, John, that we have a national conversation about that? I'm saying that that would be a national conversation, very <laughs> worth having. And by the way, we know because everybody now agrees <clears throat> that the root core of social pathology in the United States, which was not believed when when we were all kids, because it was then thought that it was primarily economic. Everybody understands that it has to do with family composition and but that's the larger the I mean, of the home, right? Right. But I'm I mean, saying so, that that's so, not that's not, there's no policy. There's you know there are things no you know, parental right, leave policies and this and that all the all yeah. the stuff that you know liberals often talk about. That's all that's all nonsense. Although you know I'm sure on the margin stuff was good, including on the right people say well you need better child tax credits and all of that. I'm saying. If, if the most important black man who has ever lived went to his community, and he's not Jesse Jackson, who also did this in the 80s, but he went to his community and said, what we need to do for our, you know, right. for, 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 for our future is for men to marry the women, men to marry women that they right. are going to have Jonah, babies did you, with and you stay married. Yeah, I recall about about uh, not to steal your epiphany, John, but I recall about about how Obama basically needs a family plan um, a few weeks ago. And it, you know, I missed it. I'm sorry. So now I'm stealing. I, yeah, I stole your epiphany and I, and I, <laughs> it's okay. and I, I mean, feel, I feel I've plagiarized you unknowingly and I apologize. It's all right. Uh, the you, other, you could do it. You could do it audibly. No problem. The, I, I got an email this morning from someone saying that I had ripped off Peggy Noonan when, in a comment on special report this week and he's lost all respect for me. And I didn't have the heart to tell him that, you know, I, I don't read Peggy Noonan all that often. Yeah. Um, but, um, uh, no, the, the, I agree with you entirely on, on the, um, on all of this. That's why I wrote the column. The, 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 I remember reading the, a friend of mine pointed me this, to this column, can't remember by, uh, a sports columnist and he's talking about how, um, blacks, you know, blacks don't play baseball anymore. Um, the numbers of, Af- of American born African Americans in the, in the, in the major leagues is just plummeted to an all time low. Um, they're not much in um, little league anymore. And they asked this guy, you know, why is the case? And he had all, there are all sorts of theories and the arguments about outreach and all the rest. But one of the core ones is just simply that baseball, unlike football and basketball, baseball is a game. You basically learn from your dad. Baseball is a game where you start by playing catch the rules are so weird that you have to have someone sitting with you while you're watching the game to explain them to you. Meanwhile, basketball is a game you, you pick up with your peers and football is a game that you pick up with your peers and you can play in the street or you play down on the courts. You don't need your dad around for that. But baseball is a game that's passed on um, by fathers. And this is sort of like, this is one of the things that got me on the civil society stuff that I've been reading up on, you know, and fathers are really at the, well, two parent families are really at the heart of any community. And as Charles Murray likes to say, there aren't a lot of single men, you know, who, um, coach soccer, you know, you're basically, you need to be married and you need to have kids. Um, and you need a wife to sort of nag you about some of this stuff to be a proper citizen. And when you have whole communities where that role for men is sort of gone, you get a mess. And, and it was funny. Someone, it was an interesting exchange on Twitter the other day where someone was saying how this whole idea that the breakdown of family leads to crime, that's all been proven wrong. 
And Ross Dowd had a great response. He said, well, yeah, sure. There's nothing like the mass incarceration of African-American men that can't su- – that- there's nothing wrong with the family that the mass incarceration of African-American men right. won't solve, right? Won't solve. And, and that's sort of the problem is that you know, we've, one of the reasons why crime is down is that we've, we've put a whole generation of black yeah. men in jail. Right, because we didn't uh, we didn't have fathers for them. I mean, and Obama and Obama did give a very good Father's Day speech in two thousand eight. There was some BS in it, some sort of having to check boxes on interracial intergenerational racism and all these kinds of things. But he had some really powerful language in there. And if he just started giving that speech again, it would be huge progress. But do you mean, think he I really mean, believes that? I mean, we, we, John Seth kept saying, "Well, we we now know, we now know." But do you think that you think that if you sat Barack Obama down, you asked him that question, he would agree with you? It seems I to me that I still get a lot of pushback on that. See, I think he would because I, I think that the issue, uh, first of all, um, uh, it's a good thing for politicians to think in this one respect, which is that uh, it lets them off the hook politically. I'm, I'm serious about this. Like, you know, one of the virtues of saying the, the truth, which is, you know, culture matters and that the, there are changes that can only be affected culturally over time, is that you can't then. You know, this stuff that happened yesterday that I was reading on Twitter while I was flying on a plane, which was, you know, by the left, which is, you know, Obama, fine, he's crying, but he needs to do something now. He needs to, you know, he needs to ban all guns now, whatever. <laughs> right. Um, this, this sort of, this, this, you know, crazed hysteria as though, you know, policy needs to be made at 45 minutes after we've learned that, you know, 20 children were slaughtered in a classroom. Um, you know, as though as though it can't keep uh, for for the president to you know cry on television as he thinks about the you know thinks about what happened in that classroom. Uh, the point being uh, that you know there is too much that is expected of our politics. You know that that's the joke about gun control and about such things, which is that um, the notion that you know a, a period uh, of during a period a gun controlling period. Uh, which is what we went through in the country from 1970 to 1990, um, you know, also leads to less crime is, of course, dispute, is, is disproved mm-hmm. by, by the results. It didn't lead to less crime. It didn't lead to less murder. It didn't lead to less killing. It didn't but, don't you think that so, the, but don't you think that the mindset for those people, no matter what, is, is if they're going to give lectures, it's not going to be – I mean all the lectures we get from Barack Obama and Michelle Obama are always this sort of – Upper middle class left wing lectures. Uh, eat better. Eat more vegetables. Um, do more exercise. Yeah, but all uh, we, of that. Which, have, by the way, which, down, by the way, you know, Rhino. Which, by the way, are yeah. Skip Gates and I have to have a beer with a cop in Cambridge and all that stuff. It's all it's all designed one way. I mean, there's absolutely there. It, it's almost inconceivable to me that I would be taking a class in college. And I, I always think of Barack Obama as a classic college professor, right? Exactly. You know exactly what he thinks about everything. It's inconceivable that anybody in college would ever say, "Hey, you know what? The real problem in in the African American community is lack of fathers." Just, just not conceivable to me. So he may think but it in the black, but within the black community, it. It, within the black community, that is not an unacceptable thing to say. Like I said, you know, Jesse Jackson revivified his own political and personal career in the 1980s through Operation Push by saying, "You know, we are orphaning our children." Now, you know, he I don't think of him as a particularly good steward of this message, but you know, the fact is that he was pushing it. Bill Cosby has pushed it. And here's here's the here's the the capper. The point is, 
if you're one of those people who thinks, you know, you need to eat your vegetables and you need, you know, to do, deal with low birth weight, you need good uh, prenatal care and you need, to, you know, uh, you need good early childhood education and all of that. None of that is doable without, uh, with, <laughs> without two parent families. No, I, I agree with I you. I know, but I'm saying, no, but, no, but they even, but, but I'm just sociologically, I don't think, in, like I say, in the late 60s and early 70s, during the, you know, the height of the war on poverty, the idea was that social pathologies were going to be cured through direct government intervention, economic intervention that raised the living standards of, of, of the poor. I just don't think people believe that anymore. No, but I think they do believe that. Now, that, now they think it, it'll be good because everyone will get universal health care, but you don't hear people talking about, you don't hear people talking about income as the key. No, no, I, but I don't. But you, but the solution. I um, the, the 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 lever is different, but the solution is the same, which is more government. I mean, don't you think, Jonah? I mean, you, you said it yourself. The right, you know, the the, uh, the breakdown of social institutions is compensated by an increase in government, which actually leads to the breakdown of social institutions. I mean, it's almost a horrible. It's a death spiral. Yeah. No. I, I, and it's you know, and the only thing that sort of gives me hope about that is that I don't know that it's 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 inevitable, right? Because that this is exactly the message that FDR had that was so powerful. It was you know he spoke to the forgotten man. Well, who was the forgotten man? The forgotten man was the guy who you know we have these enormous numbers of people who had left the farm to move to cities for the first time, to work in factories for the first time. Huge social um, unrest, de- you know, deracination, urbanization, industrialization. And these guys kind of felt lost in the switches. And the whole rhetoric of the New Deal was this idea that we're going to build a national community. And that is exactly the rhetoric that Barack Obama uses, this idea of building a national community. Government is the one thing we all belong to. Uh, uh, Politics of we're all in it together is better than on your own. Um, And it may be that that stuff works particularly well right now. And a... You know, there's a great book about the moral. I can't remember the guy's name. Is it Friedman? Not Milton. Like uh, called the moral consequences of growth. And you know, the argument is 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 basically, Benjamin. yeah, Benjamin Friedman. And there's a there's there are a lot of social pathologies that develop when you don't have economic growth. I don't think it has anything to do with this shooter, but in terms of society, um, there's certain arguments that are just easier to make, and there are certain you know you look at. Why is it? I mean, this is one of the great conundrums and the great frustrations that that sort of socially conservative people have is, is that you know marriage isn't a problem, a divorce isn't a problem for rich people anymore. You know, right. the the people David Brooks writes about, they're all married, they all wait to have their kids, and you know, and Charles Murray again, not to keep plugging him, but he, he has this great line where he says, you know, his problem with the affluent is that they won't preach what they practice. That's true. You know that that you know they're you know you, my community. I live basically in the 1950s. I live in this affluent area of Washington D.C. I probably make less than almost anybody else on my block. But um, here it's soccer practice and moms driving around in carpools and right. um, and yet there is this. And I think Obama comes from exactly that social milieu of these sort of upper middle class affluent intellectual creative you know, urban types, and they think it is incredibly gauche to lecture other people about how they should live. 
and that you can't say that they're 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 embarrassed by the idea of saying that their choices about family structure and part of this plays into the sexual politics, which I think is sort of ludicrous because I mean among the most one of the most bourgeois groups in America are all these gay guys pairing up like in Modern Family, right? Um, to have yeah. kids and right. um and yet the whole ar- and the whole argument for gay marriage is is that gay people should have the same right to have these incredibly humdrum bourgeois lies <laughs> right, that heterosexual right. people have, and yet we're not allowed to say that heterosexual people of lower income or other races really should partake of that ex- life experience too. And something's got to give, and I think Obama could have a, a pretty powerful impact. Um, I just don't think – I think John's probably right. He, he, he does not find making those kinds of arguments interesting. Well, I don't um, think anybody. I think, I think, as you put it, they're, they're all those guys—they're all at the soccer practice, driving around. They—they <laughs> they have no interest in it. I mean, if you even—if you look at the the social welfare legislation from 1964 on, it was written by a very, very upper middle class, uh, you know, haute bourgeois elite to create a kind of bohemian class below them. They basically wrote uh, 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 social welfare standards for kind of a. Parisian between the wars, bohemian existence where you know you have many lovers and nobody and you have for you're free to do your art and all that stuff. And the truth is that the one thing that group, particularly that group that was the target of all this legislation needed, was they needed guidelines. They needed guardrails. So um that's that's the most important thing. Uh, I guess we're getting we're getting um Is that God? Well uh, hi. Yeah. <laughs> hey you're back. I'm back. Um, um, nothing. Literally, nothing has happened. But you, but you you coming back, you're coming back has given us an opportunity to uh, to just segue briefly into a little bit of. Uh, I have a. You guys now. Are, I, I assume you guys both celebrate Hanukkah. Is that true? Uh, I certainly do. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I we the Goldbergs actually do both. You do both. Yeah. You know what? Hanukkah. That sounds like the worst idea on earth to me. <laughs> aside from aside from whatever the theological implications are, the notion that you have to do nine days of holidays, yeah, no, it's caroling, fun. and not only do you have to light candles, but you have to have a Christmas tree, do caroling, do Christmas Eve, do Christmas dinner, have Christmas morning, and eight nights of Hanukkah. I would, I really, seriously, I think you there, you should become a Buddhist. I. This, this <laughs> You made it. You made a gigantic category error. And yeah, no, I know. The, like, no, no, the, the decision tree went horribly awry. So, what does that mean? Does that mean that? Does that mean uh, is is that the, the the parade of horribles as as, as uh, John has uh, laid out? Well, or, or? I think what John is doing is he's imagining the full, full on. serious Jewish spread of Hanukkah and the serious christian spread of christmas and ours is a little more syncretic you know as as people may or may not know i mean i know john knows um my mom's not jewish and she made this deal with my dad when they got married that um sure you can raise him jewish i went to road of Sholem day school for nine years i was bar mitzvah and all of that uh road of Sholem day school as john knows is uh was one of the first i think it was the first reform Jewish day school in the country, and it was for parents who wanted to raise their kids Jewish, but not too Jewish. Right? <laughs> and, What's that? Um, that old uh, that old joke that uh, you know? Well, we're 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 Jews. We're not really religious. We're sort we're Jewish. Right. <laughs> right. And there's a lot of right. Jewishness in it all. And so, <laughs> so my mom. Uh, but the deal was is that they had to sell. We had to, the Goldbergs had to celebrate Christmas, 
um, not take the kids to mass or anything, but Christmas tree and all the rest. And so we had a car, we had a cutout New York Daily News headline on a cardboard Christmas tree ornament that said, Santa knows we're Jewish. And we hung it on the Christmas tree. And, um, um, and so in some ways that's sort of, has been kept alive with me. And so we, we do a sort of very toned down Hanukkah thing and then we do the Christmas thing and sometimes they overlap which is not so yeah you know, it's, but it's I mean, I've never really asked this question of anybody uh, I've, I've just sort of wondered it. I saw the, uh, the the Charlie Brown Christmas recently which of course is wonderful I love it but it's it's really religious it's very yeah. religious is it off-putting is it off-putting not not at all I mean in fact Charlie Brown Christmas in, in my view um, you know one of the reasons that it is so great um, is precisely that it is it, it is dedicated to the idea that this uh, occasion is about more than consumerism that is the entire subject of a Charlie Brown Christmas and that the beauty of that last couple of minutes where Charlie Brown's saying what is this all about is it about how big the tree is is it about how what we get at the store and blah blah blah, and then Linus reads that passage from the Gospel according to which was it Mark, the 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 birth Absolutely. of the birth of Christ, um, and and that is you know uh, just it's you know it's and that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown, which is true, right? That's what and I it's, speak as somebody. Well, I I like to, I mean I like to think it's about presents. Um, <laughs> um, in fact, yeah, I. Yeah. No, Hanukkah is about presents. Hanukkah, <laughs> Hanukkah is about presents, and I have to tell you, it's also about Jews killing other Jews. But I'm not really <laughs> wow. into that it, right now. It's starting the Hellenization of Judaism, right? I mean, yes, yeah, so it's about a war between the real Jews and the and the and the Hellenized Jews. Essentially, wow, it's so... about the not the Jews that won't assimilate and won't give up their practices, and the Jews who will, and and uh, and the Jews who won't are the heroes, and the Jews who will are the villains. So. Right. So, so uh, it's, it's it's people overly who hated Hanukkah would kill me for having this Christmas and Hanukkah thing. Well, you know, there you go. I think you you, know, you should be celebrating Hanukkah from the Hellenizing side. Then, <laughs> like, put out the oil. Don't, you know, take get candles that won't light. That would actually be the yeah. Only one candle. And what I love about it is that it's, it's a holiday that celebrates an internecine squabble. <laughs> That's true. Well, you want you you, you might want you might want to call it a squabble. Uh, we 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 like to uh, we like to call it a family dinner. Exactly. <laughs> I, 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 never, I will never have a peg to make this observation ever again. So I just got to make one quick point here. I was my daughter loves the old, including like the old claymation uh, Christmas stuff. We have to record all of them. Heatmiser, uh, Mr. Heatmiser, Mr. You know, and there have been like. Ten more that none of us really paid attention to. They kept making right. them in CGI, and it's really awful. Some of them. But I was watching the one um, hosted and narrated by Andy Griffith, where uh, Frosty the Snowman takes a wife. <laughs> and, well, that's creepy. And it, it's fascinating. And first of all, the first thing, the reason why I wanted to say no, no wanted, carrot jokes, right? Um, <laughs> is that. It was really interesting to me is that it dawned on me that in many ways, uh, one of the, one of the, one of my hangups is how we've turned monsters into lovable things, right? Yeah. That's what Sesame Street did. It was all about making the monster the the proving to you that yeah. your fear of monsters is the problem, not monsters, right? Even though technically what monster means is to is a warning about evil, um, we've turned monsters into things that we're supposed to love. 
and that if we're afraid of them, that reveals the monster inside of us, right? That is the that is the trend in popular culture the last thirty years. But um, fine, that ship has sailed. But uh, what's fascinating is so Frosty the Snowman is essentially the story of the Golem, you know, this ancient Jewish uh, <laughs> mystical story about turning, which was the inspiration for uh, Frankenstein. And instead of mud, which is what the golem is made out of, it's snow. But it's sort of the same thing. It doesn't go horribly wrong and all that. But oh well, yeah, but but did you look at the crawl, yeah. the credits of the who did the animation? You know, it was like Saul yeah, Bernstein, it's, it's Marty <laughs> Croft, uh, yeah, exactly right. Saul Bass. Exactly right. It's like, well, the um, heat, the heat miser, the heat miser, and the snow miser are, are clearly Philip Rothian. You know, they they got they yeah. both have mother problems. And, you know, one's too fat and one's too skinny and. They got you know, they, 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 and they, and they, yeah. they all argue over who mom loved best. It's, you know, it's very, very, uh, you Well, you, you find that, I mean, even in the Smurfs, time. isn't this, the, the evil one in the Smurfs, Gargamel or something, the, uh, the, 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 the Belgian cartoonist who invented him, it's a French one, a Belgian mm-hmm. one, um, it, he's written, he, he's written and described, um, uh, he, he's, he's Jewish, uh, you know he's the, he's the evil yeah, one. Yeah, well, Belgian, Bel- Belgian, Belgian, uh, <laughs> Le Belgique, c'est c'est n'a pas you know prosémite. They they are not prosémite. <laughs> That's very well, very well done. Thank thank you very much. I uh, do I just I do have a confession to make though. I I I've been telling people this because I, I want it off my chest because I, I I do understand the spirit of the season. But it, when you get to be a certain age. Yeah, I've discovered that you know, one of the one of the probably the big downside, along with you know losing uh, you know mental capacity, is you get to be a certain age. People no longer give you Christmas presents in your family. Yeah. They think, oh no, it's for the kids. It's for the kids, and I I I hate that. I want presents, and so last year I uh, sort of put my foot down with a family, and I said, no, we're gonna we're gonna get presents. I fly a long way for this Christmas, and I you know I love my uh, my niece and nephew, but uh, I don't. I won't get up early and watch them unwrap the you know the the Lego Death Star. I want you know I want I want something of value under that tree. <laughs> you know what, what, what? But you know what always cracks me up is conservative magazines for decades have done you know Christmas books recommendations, and it's always you know and, and you're you're asked what what you would recommend for you know Christmas books to give to, and it's always you know people use it as a way of saying nice things about their friends or books they admire or something like that. So it's always like somebody says, if you really want to know about taxation policy in Illinois, (laughs) (laughs) Loyola University assistant professor, you know, Phil Green's uh, monograph is really one of the best Christmas presents you could ever give. And I would always think like, who... I really hope that nobody actually takes us up on. Yeah, I would rather <laughs> because well, this will end the possibility of ideological conversion in our time. What I did, I, I really my... wanted to give you a book that you really needed to read uh, for Chris. That would really give yeah. you, you know, yeah. enormous pleasure. So I, so here, up by the fire. Yeah, here, here is a copy of you know. Uh, Coming Apart by Charles Murray. Not that I think that that's not a valuable book, but I don't think you would want it for Christmas. Uh, you don't want to hear. Uh, so. You don't want to hear um, 
you know, uh, jingle bells behind it. I uh, well, what I did with my family was I, I made us do Secret Santas because we I couldn't we, we we certainly were never going to buy presents for everybody, each one of us for everybody. Just pick one, you know, targeted, uh, and so put put uh, put the names in the hat, and we pass the hat around, and everybody you know keep it secret. And um, and then about forty five minutes later, my brother suddenly looked up from whatever he was doing and looked at me, in a kind of an accusatory. Slightly pre-outraged way, and said, "Rob, did you write your name down five times?" <laughs> <laughs> and I had to, I had to admit that I did. I actually did that. <laughs> I was planning at some point. I would like to tell you I, what would happen if Jews had Secret Santa. It would be like, "What? I'm the secret. I'm your Secret Santa." <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm your Secret Santa. <laughs> so, what do you want? Yeah, what's amazing? <laughs> that's that, that's that that's a Jewish secret Santa. Yeah, that's right. just, just to Everybody, let you know, I'm secret Santa. <laughs> that's right, Santa Schmanta. What do you want? I'll give yeah, you a check. I'll give you a check. Yeah, go get it yourself. Yeah, <laughs> gonna schlep all the way. Um, uh, uh, traditionally, in the TV business, what's weird is that we all remember these these shows. You know, the, the Heat Miser, all that stuff. Um, but traditionally, in the TV business, Christmas time, December, is what we call very low hut levels, households using television. It's very low. Like if you're doing a TV series and you've got one or two real stinko episodes, you bury them in December when they're low hut levels because nobody's watching. But for some reason, maybe it's obviously it's the season, for some reason, those, those shows are so meaningful. And I, I think it's lost on the next generation or the younger generation. But I remember – the first time you're with a whole bunch of people your age is like your freshman year in college. And mostly what you do is you spend the time celebrating and kind of remembering all these weird things you watch together but separately. Now I think people just, just naturally do it. But back then, it was kind of cool in college to like to share that. Like, oh, yeah, I watched that too. I mean, did anybody else have that experience or just me? Well, I, I can think of, you know, great and, and, and terrible Christmas episodes. I miss the Christmas episodes. Um, uh, in fact, the kids' channels are now doing Christmas episodes the way they did, you know, when, when we were little. Uh, you know, there's a uh, Disney Channel Christmas episodes. But uh, I, I do have to say that one of Jonah, uh, Jonah and, and uh, Jonah's and my, you know, uh, sort of load stars uh, uh, really did produce a horrendous... The Odd Couple Christmas episode is a is a uh, is what you would call in Yiddish a, sh- a shanda. First of all, the notion that these two you know incredibly neurotic Jewish men are celebrating Christmas at, at, at all is itself you know uh, ludicrous in 1972 or whatever. But it's accept that they weren't Jewish and that they weren't gay. Uh, well, you could accept that they weren't gay, but you know, seriously, you would you would you would have to be an idiot not to understand that you know Jack Klugman and Tony Randall <laughs> weren't Jewish. Uh, Tony Randall's gayness is a whole other uh, question. Unless you're telling me that George Costanza wasn't Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but um, but that really was uh, where he's like uh, you know Oscar is, uh, is is Scrooge and, uh, and and Felix is the ghost of the Christmas oh, past. It's, oh. not, it's not good. Oh it's my god. Yeah. Also, also there that. there were many you know bewitched episodes where she goes to the North Pole, she comes back to the North Pole, she goes to the North Pole. Uh, you know, it's uh, <laughs> 
I actually, I actually but... for them. I like them. I, I've never done one. I've never done a holiday theme show. I did a St. Patrick's Day theme show once, but I never done a holiday theme show because you never know when the show's going to air. But, or frankly, in my career, if it's going to air. But the the um, the 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 ones I like are the ones usually when they when they um, when they bring in uh, a homeless person who isn't they find the one homeless person who just to get circle back to the way we started who isn't insane and isn't uh, doesn't isn't carrying a rusty penknife and they bring that person in for christmas dinner um i've always uh, i've always enjoyed those um well, and then there there's the, the single greatest christmas episode if i remember correctly was the barney miller christmas episode when um when jack sue the 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 uh, the Asian uh, guy that like has a date on Christmas Eve, and Mojahoitz recognizes her as a call girl that he has busted before, and he doesn't know what to he you know he doesn't know what to do. And meanwhile, uh, you know, it was a uh, modern adaptation of the Gifts of the Magi. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah, and then the and then the inspector uh, is desperately trying to get uh, you know Barney to invite him over for Christmas dinner. Another problems since of course uh, Barney Miller and his wife uh extremely Jewish uh I would say. <laughs> um yeah, but yeah. still uh you know that was actually that was a really uh, notable uh I, I will say, but of course the Hallmark channel or Lifetime or something literally shows fifty bad Christmas movies all made in Canada but you know set in Pittsburgh about you know a single woman in her 30s who was given up believing uh, in Santa and then Patrick Dempsey you know uh, comes into town because uh, Mrs. Claus you know arranges some magic and and then they have a you know and she goes home to her small town which has you know christmas lights in the window and everybody sings a carol and it goes skating and then the love is found it's the same wow. plot over Good and over pitch. and over again man you should have said spoiler alert yeah. um, oh, sorry about that uh, uh the i have to say just to give him credit in terms of good christmas specials the tv show community which has just not gotten the props it deserves um some of their christmas specials have been really really trippy um, the, the claymation one in particular was just a, almost a bridge too far for me, but, uh, but they've been really very good. And the, the last one, which was a send up of the TV show Glee, um, and how basically Glee is a mind sucking cult that hypnotizes people was really, really brilliant. Um, and, but I, I agree generally that the Christmas special is a, um, my, the, the sad. low point, the low point, uh, of the, of of the Christmas specials for me was the, the when they Sherwood Schwartz to I think somebody mentioned him um, brought uh, re- reanimated the uh, the Brady Bunch with the same cast and um, the, just in the same house just older and they were all coming back for Christmas and um, Mike Brady uh, was building a building he's an architect but um, they, uh, they the the builder. Or the owner uh, was uh, uh, cheaped out on some materials, and uh, Mike thought it was unsafe, so he went to go on Christmas Day or Christmas morning to go and and just check it out. And of course, the building collapses on him, and he's trapped uh, underneath hey, the rubble. You know, you're making fun of that, but if I if I remember correctly, that that special that that movie <laughs> was the highest rated it TV might, might movie ever made. Well, I saw it. <laughs> 
ever, ever made. And wait, it's not just that. It's not just that. You also had, if I remember on that, if I remember on that, that uh, Greg was married to his boss, but yeah. he couldn't admit that he was that her she was his boss because she made more and it was too too humiliating. And then, and then Jan's husband lost his job and they were getting divorced. Oh, and then that. somebody, somebody, Peter is a race car driver, but he won't tell his parents or something. Oh, John, and then he I gets into a, he gets this. into a car accident. I don't know. On and on and on. And Oliver's a pedophile. The crisp donut. <laughs> Oliver, Oliver, disab- <laughs> Oliver disappeared. <laughs> Oliver, <laughs> Oliver was no longer present. Uh, Oliver went up upstairs and didn't come back downstairs yeah. like Chuck. Yeah, Nobody pays attention to him. He's fine. He looks depressed, but I think he's okay. Um, he moved uh, into okay. a house with more than one bathroom, so he actually had that going for him. <laughs> yeah. The miracle part was when Florence Henderson sings "O Come All Ye Faithful" outside the the broken, uh, the collapsed building, and the sound of her voice leads Mike Brady out. You know, you know, I your cynicism, this kind of <laughs> dark, dark cynicism, right? Uh, the, the refusal to understand. By the way, some of the greatest reading of all time. If you get one of these retrospectives of the Brady Bunch, or like I don't know, for some reason my 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 wife had a copy of Barry Williams's memoir because because she works in <laughs> yeah, television. He was on a show that she was on, and 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 he brought he signed a copy to her. So I read yeah, it. It was a Hanukkah gift. Just yeah. Yeah. anyway, no. But here's but here but like Robert Reed who played. Uh, uh, Mr. Brady, um, uh, it, he decided at some very early point that the show was insufficiently serious and did not take account of the problems of blended families in America. And he would write end- endless memos to Sherwood Schwartz about how you know wh- where was the where was the punch and where was just really was beneath him as great and serious actor and apparently he was just a total nightmare to work with but if you really want a good laugh in this time when it's hard to find a good laugh see if you can find on YouTube the famous episode of the television series Medical Center uh, in which Robert (laughs) Reed plays a person who undergoes a transsexual operation that's right that's right and it ends with him a woman and you know he has a wig on and a dress and you know something under his shirt, and he's like, you know, hello, Chad Everett. You know, he's like, he raises his voice. <laughs> he's like, you know, about a it's miracle. nice to meet you, Chad Everett. <laughs> you know, so uh, and it's one of the great uh, that 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 was one of the two great performances in in American uh, you know series guest history. Uh, the other being, of course, John Davidson as a uh, transsexual serial killer on Streets of San Francisco. Another, another well, must find on on YouTube. Ricardo Montalban as the Japanese crime lord in Hawaii, and they oh, basically just scotch taped his eyes slantward mm-hmm. to make him yeah. look like he was. It was the most. It was a hate crime, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. Although I'm telling you that more credible than John Davidson as a, you know. As a, as a serial killer. Yeah, I don't know. Have you heard Ricardo Montalban's Japanese accent? <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Well, he's, he's classically trained. Oh, I well, on to... Sanderson thing, just one last thing. I know John knows this because this he, he somehow missed it when it first came out, and then he sent me an email about, the, about <laughs> how it's the most important story of the last century. <laughs> we know what happened with you know John Lindsay, former mayor of New York City. 
sure. gave Florence Henderson a case of the crabs. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And is that true? That is true. Yes. She said it in her memoir. And yeah. I I just I love the idea that John Lindsay, who like was the golden boy for a whole generation of politicos and liberal right. republicans and whatever, that you know, he had to have known he had the crabs, but he's like Look, you take your opportunities where you can find them. If I have a chance to bet Florence Henderson, you know, that's her problem. <laughs> well, that is, it's, you know what that is? That's the tragedy of the commons. <laughs> you know, uh, John Lindsay also um, uh, gave one of the world's uh, greatest uh, performances uh, ever uh, in, a, in a, playing a senator, which he never uh, managed to, to become uh, um, in a in a in auto I believe what was <clears throat> may have been Otto Preminger's last movie called Rosebud, which is a, a dreadful, dreadful sort of thriller. Um, and John Lindsay is sort of the senator who's trying to arrange for the rescue of some some people who get kidnapped with a CIA agent. And um, and again, I don't know if it's on YouTube or not, but if you could find like two minutes of this performance. It isn't the worst performance ever given because that <clears throat> that would have to be the scene in Tough Guys Don't Dance, uh, Norman Mailer's movie, in which uh, Ryan O'Neill says, oh man, oh God, oh God, oh man. And if you have never seen that, <laughs> just go to YouTube and type in worst acting ever. You, it's 40 seconds. It is the worst thing you have ever seen. The worst. It, it, it must be seen. Oh, man, Sylvester, oh God, that's oh God, Sylvester, that, that Sylvester Stallone Dolly Parton movie. No, 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 no. no that's like that's like Hamlet compared to <laughs> compared to wrong. compared to wrong. him saying, "Oh God, oh man, oh man, oh God." No, you're both wrong. The worst movie ever made is Boat Trip, and I will I will hear no and Brooke zero opposition to this. Wait, are you talking about the movie like Boat Trip, or are you talking about the National Review Cruise? Because I'm not well, sure what you're, easy. you're actually referring easy. to. Uh, Low-hanging fruit. I'll let you, I'll let you have that uh, just because it's uh, Hanukkah in the spirit of the season. Thank you very much. Um, uh, so uh, so are there any other um, secret Jews you want to uh, out besides Robert Reed? Did you have Robert Reed? He, he's, wasn't he? Was uh, he secret Jews. I would say the only uh, you mean characters on uh, on on television shows. I mean, well, no, but I mean that, that was a that was a trope of the seventies. Was like I mean, you know, uh, Arthur Fonzarelli, the Fonz. That's uh, right. It, <laughs> Henry Winkler, who. Um, yes. Well, then there are people who you think are Jews who are not Jews. Uh, Gary Marshall, I think, being the the, the yeah. key person in American history who. Who who talks with a Yiddish accent and he talks like this and his sister talks like that and they both talk like this and they're both they're Italians from the Bronx but they but you would never in a billion years know. I'm still not sure I believe you. Apparently, <laughs> apparently oh, that's the family name is Moscarelli, I think. So yeah, huh. it's like, yeah, yeah. Um, well, good good career move though I gotta say. Um, so uh, so uh, you guys are you guys going anywhere for Christmas? You have uh, Christmas plans? You're going to stick around house, Jonah? Uh, we're going to be in Las We're going to be in Las Vegas. Uh, <laughs> uh, I will tell last last you will you will enjoy this fact, Rob. Last last Christmas Day, uh, my family was in uh, uh, Los Angeles, and we 
uh, because you know we were on East Coast time. My my then you know one year old was waking up at three o'clock in the morning. I remember so we this. were in the hotel at three o'clock in the morning with nothing to do, and so at, desperate to do something at six o'clock in the morning, we went for Christmas breakfast at Cantor's Deli. Oh my god! Um, which was like being not only in a hopper painting. <laughs> but it was, it was, yeah. it, there were us and like four people in this incredibly dark, huge room that hasn't been renovated since 1958. Um, yeah, the other side is that uh, Hopper painting, the, the food in that diner looks good. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, I mean, I was thrilled. My wife was rather less of a taste for kitsch than, than <laughs> I do, was, was, was more horrified and appalled and depressed. But, um, you know, uh, it was. Christmas. It really was. It, it was like taking a journey into. It was yeah. being a, in a David Lynch movie. That is the, yeah, the best cool. breakfast in L.A. Though is that it's the, what's the place called John O'Goats? John O'Groats. John O'Groats. That place is great. That place is very good. Very but it good. wasn't yeah. open. It wasn't open. No. Uh, nothing is no. open. This is the interesting thing to me about 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 L.A. is that unlike New York, or even Chicago, at six o'clock in the morning when you have children, you got nowhere to go. Well, that's John. You're so spoiled because that's, that's basically true of the world, except for London and New York. No, I said like Chicago. You there are places to go. <laughs> okay, I guess so. I guess so. so. Chicago. What about Chicago? Huh? Chicago. Yeah, right, fair you enough. Have your fair choice. enough. You get your choice, yeah. Jonah. Yeah. <laughs> Chicago or New York? Yeah. Okay. So, are, are, Jonah, uh, so Jonah, are you gonna, are you sticking close to home? Or are you going? Are you guys? We are uh, here. We're here for Christmas. Grandma's coming down with a U-Haul trailer of Christmas presents for her one grandchild. Um, and you know, my wife is one of nine kids, so there are I think now over thirty grandkids on that side of the family, and there's exact one on my side of the family, and so there's a lot of compensation going on. Um, the uh, but then my wife and daughter are going to sunny Fairbanks, Alaska for New Year's. Wow. Okay. And they'll right. be up there for a week. I'll be down here playing poker and what okay what what do people do uh in fairbanks on new year's oh on new year's is it like does it last seven days (laughs) i believe my brother-in-law does i think one of my brothers-in-law has like an outside hot tub and they do a sort of a scandinavian thing with the kids and then they have fireworks um on their property and so i mean i think they actually have a good time and they're it's great for kids because when you have that many kids you know, cousins running around, you know, the, the, the kids make fun, have fun, figure out how to have fun on their own. But it's just, it's just really cold up there. I mean, I was there for the first time. I've been dining out on the fact that my wife's from Alaska for years, but I'd never been in there, been there actually in the winter until this last January. And I was there when it was 51 below zero, no wind chill, straight up 51 <laughs> wow. below zero. That doesn't exist. That's like Kelvin, right? It's just a kind of a theoretical temperature. Well, that's the funny thing is it's completely – It's Jess always – my wife always says that the coldest place she's ever been is Chicago because <laughs> it's that wet wind that you yeah. get that just sort of cuts through all your clothes. And in 51 below, it doesn't feel like the, the cold weather is attacking you like that. Instead, it feels – because the air is so dry and it's so cold – it feels like your soul is being sucked out of your body. Right. That, like all of your energy, all the moisture on your skin is all being pulled out. <laughs> and it's a completely different experience. And so it's funny. Your skin is kind of tingly up there. They get this stuff called ice fog, which isn't real fog. It's the particulates in the air 
basically the molecules slow down and bind with the pollution and sort of sit there. And the sun is basically blotted out, you know, to the extent it comes out at all. And I was up there with my DC-based brother-in-law, this guy who grew up in Louisiana, and we were up there and we were like, you know, this is as close as we'll ever get to experiencing nuclear winter. You know, right. it feels like there's radiation in the air and you can't see the sun and, right. you know, oh the God. physics are different. It's just a different place. It's fascinating, but it's just different, you know? Not exactly. You know, I, I, lived in, I lived in Chicago. Last year that I was in Chicago at college in 1982 in January, it, it reached 26 below. Um, and everybody's pipes froze and burst. And we were sitting in our living room in three coats, uh, you know, watching the you know, NFC championship game. Um, and, uh, and I did have this sort of moment of thinking, you know, why, why does anybody live, you know, why doesn't everybody live near the equator? I mean, it's, it just doesn't, this is not, you know, human beings are not meant, mm-hmm. you know, to live under these conditions. But and yet, and Alaska they, uh... really is. I mean, that's a real, uh, Right. It's far away. Fairbanks is just a few hundred miles south of the Arctic Circle. I mean, it's just crazy. But, you know, yeah, it's funny. Intemperate, up, intemperate cold climbes, right? Not, not quite as extreme as Alaska, but northern Europe is where, uh, where it all came from. That's where all the smarts came from. So all the music well, there is, isn't that there is that from. argument that that right. says that um, that cold weather forced people indoors and forced them to spend months doing nothing yeah. but thinking. Right. Well, and so, manipulating their environment, right? If you have to, yeah, they had to learn how to manipulate over. their environment because it was so unpleasant. You have to make clothes. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I think yeah. there's some credence to it. But um, to really bring this back to where we began, when I was growing up um, in New York, we always used to wonder in the winter time why anybody would be homeless. And obviously, there's some stupidity in this on our part. But you know, why anybody would be homeless in New York in the winter time? Why wouldn't you like you just do everything you can, move to California? And that way you can be outside where it's nice and sunny and pleasant. And it was just sort of one of these things like New York is just a really dumb place to be homeless. And um, I know that sounds insensitive, but it just you sort of think about it. And then finally, the first time it was the first time I had ever been to Santa Monica was for the 2000 <laughs> Democratic Convention. And I was like, right. they did move here. Did. <laughs> just, we just saw the stragglers who didn't. But like 90 percent of them did move to California because I mean, no, I, yeah. My friend Harry San Francisco Shiro. and California and LA have real homeless issues the way New York still did in the seventies. You know? my, my friend Harry Shearer always says it's a, it's a, Santa Monica's the home of the homeless. <laughs> Just, you know, um, uh, you're in you're in uh, in San Francisco, my uh, Rob. You said so. Of course, the the uh, key uh, public policy issue in San Francisco over the uh, last couple of weeks, as I understand it, has been the um, extensive protests. Over uh, legislation um, uh, suggesting there should be some some regulation, not total, some regulation of the uh, absolute right to public nudity. Yes, um, and in fact, there have been extensive protests, um, assuming that uh, there was something you know uh, deeply illegitimate about preventing people from expressing themselves in this fashion. And again, not to bring things back, you know, because obviously this is funny and ridiculous, and it's something to make fun of and all this, but. A society in which uh, it is believed uh, that there is no uh, essential public good in the notion that people should not be walking around nude, uh, it 
there is some relation. It's very hard to establish what, because it's too vague. There is some relation between a society that seems to now find it necessary to make an affirmative argument about that, have a conversation about that when no yeah. conversation really ought to be necessary, and what happened in, in Connecticut. I mean, if we are so, if we have so lost any connection whatsoever to the sort of most elemental aspects of civilization, one of which is uh, you don't, you, there is, there, the, the ultimate private realm is your body, and that your body is a private thing uh, to you and yourself alone, um, and that if we, if we have achieved a point at which this is no longer clear, um, uh, we, you know, we are, we, we, we do live, uh, you know, in an app, in a sick atmosphere that, you know, leads to bizarre expressions of things in which, you know, maybe people are, uh, free who should not be free or, you know, people who are, who are, who are out on the loose, who should not be out on the loose. Well, I would, I would like to, like to disagree with you. Unfortunately, I'm actually here for one of the protests. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think it's a good point. It's a good point. But but thanks for uh, thanks for bringing us down near the end here. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. You know, it's it's part of my it's part of my job as the Jeez. you know the Jew, the Jew in the ointment. You know, it's, uh... <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. God, talk about Bob. well, you're, you're you're probably right. But that that gives us something to talk about next time. All right, my right. friends, I gotta run. I well, have hey. literally gotta go buy a Christmas tree. So... You gotta go buy a Christmas tree. Well, listen, Merry Christmas to you and to John. Um, or I buy, say... buy a really depressing little one. Like in honor of the, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. It's, it's not a, yeah, get, get the, the worst one there, because remember, that's not the point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you guys. All right. See you guys. Merry, Merry, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Bye. Ricochet. Join the conversation. Christmas is all about Charlie Brown.